This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. My usual co-host, Mark Rotella, is out this week, so I'm here on my own to bring you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Anil Ananthaswamy, who's the author of The Man Who Wasn't There, discusses the strange new science of the self. Then PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habesh explores the season's big debuts. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. We've got a lot of big books on the fiction list this week, starting at number three. Of course, numbers one and two continue to be Gosetta Watchman and The Girl on the Train. I think that's going to be true for quite a while. But at number three, we have Circling the Sun by Paula McLean. PW gave this a starred review, saying that uh, this novel showcases McLean's immersive command of setting and character. She's fictionalizing the exploits of real-life aviator and author Burl Markham in British Kenya in the early 20th century. Uh, We say that she paints an intoxicatingly vivid portrait of colonial Kenya and its privileged inhabitants. And then Markham's true life was incredibly adventurous. And it's easy for readers to identify with this woman who refused to be pigeonholed by her gender. So uh, quite exciting. It's also got a gorgeous cover and it's there at number three. At number six, we have Badlands by C.J. Box. We also gave this one a starred review, saying it's a superior thriller, which carries some characters and themes over from his two previous standalone novels, The Highway and Back of Beyond. Uh, This one is a contemporary thriller set in North Dakota in uh, what we call the Sub-Zero Prairie, where a little town is bursting with thousands of roughnecks, its infrastructure and law enforcement system almost overwhelmed. And the story's brisk action is broken into alternating sections as the two protagonists, investigator Cassie DeWell and 12-year-old paperboy Kyle Westergaard, try to figure out what's going on in the town and what they need to do. We say the vulnerable boy's plight gives emotional heft to the criminal investigation, balancing cynicism with warm empathy. Not something you see very often in a thriller. So that's at number six. And down at number 10 is The Bourbon Kings by J.R. Ward. Ward is known for paranormal books uh, like the Black Dagger Brotherhood series. This one is a contemporary romance. We called it a melodramatic series opener. It's a cross-class romance between uh, the scion of the Bradford family, uh, which owns a massive bourbon-funded Kentucky estate, and uh, the head gardener at that estate. And so the romance between the two of them is socially unthinkable, uh, especially because Lane Bradford is already married. And there's a tremendous amount of family drama going on in in the background. We say the novel contains concealed scandals, unconcealed scandals, murder, kidnapping, incest, racism, the theft of millions of dollars, domestic violence, mistaken identity, and a thinly disguised Kentucky Derby, all of which come in and out of the plot as necessary. And the book flows smoothly from crisis to crisis. 
but we do say that uh, the, all the ruckus fails to conceal the gaping hole where likable or interesting characters should be. Certainly that's not stopping Ward's fans from picking it up. It is also getting some positive review attention elsewhere. So it's firmly at number 10. Going down a little further, uh, number 23 is Brushback by Sarah Paretsky. Uh, this is the 18th novel featuring V.I. Warshawski. And uh, these books are justifiably popular. We gave this one a starred review, said it's electrifying. And uh, we've got so much involved in this. Uh, there's Warshawski is coming back to her old neighborhood um encountering her former teenage flame whose mother just finished 25 years in prison for murdering his younger sister and she's now proclaiming her innocence uh, and Vic agrees to look into it but there's some bad blood going back between their two families. Uh, we say that Paretsky never shies from tackling social issues and in this installment she also targets political corruption without ever losing sight of her dogged sleuth's very personal stake in the story that's at number 23 then number 27 uh we have kitchens of the great midwest this is a debut by j ryan straddle and it's uh, it centers on eva thorvald the daughter of a chef and an aspiring sommelier who has food in her dna and uh, that fact remains irrefutable even after her mother abandons her and then her father dies when she's an infant and so she's raised uh, by relatives in Wisconsin and Iowa, hence the kitchens of the great Midwest. And she grows up obsessed with restaurant kitchens, chili peppers, and local cuisine. And we say that uh, certain bits of information occasionally feel deliberately withheld for dramatic effect, though they are eventually revealed. And her superstar status at the end of the story feels like a little bit of a stretch. But Eva herself is a compelling and deliciously flawed character. So that's one for the, the foodie readers out there. Just below it at number 28 is Pretty Baby by Mary Kubica. Uh, she follows her acclaimed debut, The Good Girl, with what we say is a superb psychological thriller. Another starred review. It's nice to see so many books that we liked. Uh, also getting some love on the bestseller list. The two things don't always go together. Uh, in this book, Heidi Wood's husband, Chris, and her 12-year-old daughter, Zoe, are used to her rants about recycling poverty and literacy, um, but they never expected her to actually invite a homeless teenager and her infant to live with them. Uh, she becomes obsessed with the teen and especially with the baby, even as her marriage phrase, and she ignores her own child. Uh, we say a series of flashbacks shift among the various points of view as this heartbreaking tale about obsession, foster care, and the debilitating effects of unacknowledged grief builds to a stunning conclusion. So I don't want to give away too much about that, but it sounds intense and pretty wonderful. Down at number 32, we have Half a War by Joe Abercrombie. Uh, this is the last volume in the epic fantasy trilogy. Uh, Abercrombie is usually known for these very dark, grim books. Um, in fact, his Twitter handle is Lord Grimdark. And uh, this one is a little bit of a departure from that. There's still a lot of intensity and uh, sort of no holds barred depictions of warfare, but uh, it's slightly less cynical and uh, more optimistic, more in the slightly traditional epic fantasy vein. And we say this is an impressive conclusion to the trilogy. Uh, it's got a new set of protagonists, though they're very connected to the ones who came before. It's difficult to provide 
any kind of plot summary that would make sense to people who haven't read the first two books. Uh, but we say that Abercrombie piles on shocking betrayals and charges his characters a high price for vengeance in this powerful and fitting final volume. So for those who have been following the series, this one will not disappoint. At 47 is Silent Creed by Alex Cava. Uh, this is the exciting sequel to his first novel, Breaking Creed, uh, which takes uh, canine rescue dog trainer Ryder Creed and his dog to North Carolina's Haywood County, where they search for survivors of a major landslide. And among the missing are scientists working on a classified project at the local branch of DARPA. So there's a lot going on here. Uh, there's an undercurrent of a potential romance between Creed and an FBI agent, Maggie O'Dell. And uh, we say that Creed is a multifaceted character whose hidden depths are only barely revealed in this intense thriller, which builds to an explosive conclusion. At 49, uh, we have My Grandmother Asked Me to Tell You She's Sorry, uh, which is an interesting sort of quasi-fantastical literary novel. Uh, it's about a precocious seven-year-old who, uh, whose grandmother tells her nightly bedtime fairy tales in their small apartment in the land of Almost Awake. When her grandmother dies, she has to deliver her final letters uh, to the other residents of the building, including uh, a monster or someone called a monster, and uh, other interesting characters. And so this young girl proceeds on her quest, and as she gets to know her neighbors, she discovers they all share traits and histories with characters from the fairy tales that her grandmother told her. So uh, we say it's certainly entertaining and full of whimsical charm and warm heart, uh, with several subplots to juggle and an overabundance of quirkiness. So it doesn't succeed quite as well as Backman's previous work, but fans of the author will find more to like here. Moving over to the nonfiction side, there are fewer debuts this this week. Uh, we have to go all the way down to 22 to find the first one in uh, hardcover nonfiction. Uh, we have How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap, and Prepare Your Kid for Success. So there's been a lot of these books that are sort of the backlash against the idea of helicopter parents. And uh, this one's written by former Stanford University Dean Julie Lithcott-Hames, who we say presents a convincing vision of overprotected, overparented, overscheduled kids in this report on the current state of childhood and parenting in middle and upper class families. Uh, she is the mother of two teens, and she counts herself among those who have taken far too many aspects of their children's lives into their own hands. And the result is that today's young adults can't competently make decisions, manage risk, overcome setbacks, or take charge. So uh, the overparenting trend, Lithcott Hames contends, is harmful not only to kids, but also to parents. And this vigorous text will give parents the backup they need to make essential changes. That's at number 22. Down at 24, uh, we have Ronda Rousey's My Fight, Your Fight. Uh, this is uh, being billed as the only official Ronda Rousey book. We don't have a review of it yet, but uh, this in Olympic medalist in judo and Hollywood star, uh, who's also been in the middle of some controversy recently regarding her opinions on transgender fighters and uh, the Olympics and other competitions, uh, is giving her own account of her life, including the toughest fights that she's faced inside and outside the the octagon. And uh, we've got that at number 24. Uh, going down to uh, 46, 
which is, again, the next debut, really not a lot on the list this week. We have The Skinny Taste Cookbook, Light on Calories, Big on Flavor by Gina Homolka. Um, this is the first cookbook from the blog Skinny Taste. We don't have a review of this, but it's being billed as featuring 150 recipes, including 125 all-new dishes and 25 favorites from the blog. Uh, so that's one to keep an eye out for if you're a follower of the Skinny Taste blog. At 47 is Dylan Goes Electric, Newport Seeger Dylan and the Night That Split the 60s. This is a focus on the evening of July 25th, 1965, when Bob Dylan took the stage at the Newport Folk Festival backed by an electric band and shocked the audience of committed folk purists and political activists. Uh, no review of this one yet for PW, but uh, it looks to be an exciting examination of uh, one of those moments when you really could see history changing before your eyes. And uh, down at 48 is Color Therapy, an anti-stress coloring book. Those of you who are regular listeners may recall that we had a piece on coloring books for adults a few weeks ago. And uh, this is a hardcover one, which is pretty rare and gives you a sense of uh, you know, just how much this is becoming a thing. The people who created it, Cindy Wilde, Laura Kate Chapman, Richard Merritt, say that uh, everyone will benefit from the stress-relieving effect that increased focus and creativity can provide. Uh, I think what they really mean is that coloring is fun and it feels nice. So uh, for those who agree with that, this will be another exciting addition to the adult coloring book library. Finally, at number 50, we have Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel by Carl Safina, uh, who's the author of Song for the Blue Ocean. And uh, Considering the fascination human beings have with animal behavior, it's little wonder that there are so many books on the subject, but many of those resources compare animal behavior with human behavior, uh, which Safina says is uh, sort of apples to oranges. He chooses to compare one type of animal behavior with another. So he meets up with animal behavior researchers in the field in Kenya, the wolves of Yellowstone, and finally going to visit killer whale pods in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we say that in this mind-bending book, Safina takes the reader along with him on his adventures, en enlightening and educating at every stop. Those interested in animal behavior, as well as anyone who's ever wondered about higher animal intelligence, will feel as if they're right next to the author, learning along with him. And that's at number 50 on the hardcover nonfiction list. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Anil Ananthaswamy tells us how our brains tell us who we are. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Naomi Barron, author of Words on Screen, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, I've got Anil Anantaswamy on the line. His new book is The Man Who Wasn't There. Anil, I'm so glad you could join us. Uh, Rose, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about the book, about the, the concept behind it, and how you arrived at that concept. So um, the book, as you said, it's about uh, the investigations into the science of the self. Um, and the concept behind the book is to ex examine what neuroscience is telling about our sense of self by looking at various uh, neurological, neuropsychological conditions that uh, disturb the self in some way. What, what I mean by that is uh, it changes how one feels about oneself. So uh, by looking at these various conditions, each of which um, kind of alter the self in a particular way, in a different way, um, the 
the idea is to get a sense for how the brain might construct the self uh, in the first place and then to get a sort of a neuroscientific understanding of what might be happening in the brain and body to give us uh, the self that we are. Um, and you were asking about uh, how the idea came about. I mean, I've been interested in questions about the self for a, a very long time, since my late 20s, I think. And uh, part of it could be just that uh, growing up in India where the major religions uh, are kind of obsessed with uh, answering the question, who am I? Um, their theologies kind of stem from their, un their own particular answers to that question about the nature of the self. So it's possibly something in my cultural DNA that kind of uh, egged me to, uh, you know, to start looking at this subject. And um, as a writer, I was kind of looking for a new uh, and more and a illuminative way of uh, tackling this subject because there are already so many uh, lovely good books on the subject, uh, each of them coming at it from a different perspective. So, uh, and when I found um, that, when I discovered that I could kind of take uh, an approach that uh, allowed us to examine the self by looking at uh, disturbances of the self it, it all started to make sense as a as a book so our our starred review of the book says that you explore the uncomfortable aberrations that reveal what it is to be human so how do you do that how do you define this sort of negative space of the self by looking at uh, what we think of as abnormalities I mean, I think one of the things that happened to me as I was writing the book is, you know, I, I stopped thinking of uh, conditions as uh, abnormalities or disorders in, in some sense because, you know, when you when you think of being human, um, you know, being human is in some sense a condition. It, it's something we are, and uh, and then if you have Alzheimer's, if you have schizophrenia, uh, if you are suffering from autism, that's also being human is just uh, you know a different way of being human, and so in some sense, um, I mean, this is not to belittle uh, or, or 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 lessen the suffering that some of these conditions entail. Uh, I'm not saying that, but in some sense, uh, what it tells us is that there's always someone experiencing uh, the conditions of schizophrenia. There's always someone experiencing the conditions of autism and and which you know I, I kind of uh, now feel like we just need to think of these things as all aspects of one's self and and you know we just happen to be the self who we are given uh, through a combination of our genetics or our environment or society culture etc and uh, and we deal with that the best we can and even being human uh, you know in, in all its normality is also something you have to deal with somehow and uh, and that's what it and that's what it came down to me uh, eventually and so in terms of looking at uh, you know the nature of the self by looking at how the self might change in certain situations it's not dissimilar to how neuroscience has understood um, brain function you know when you think about how much we've learned about the brain by looking at uh, situations where people have had some sort of uh, traumatic injury to the brain or the stroke um, and consequently lost some functionality. We've been able to correlate the loss of functionality with the damage and, and understood sort of anatomically, physiologically what might be happening. Um, and in some sense, the self, you know, you can think of it in, a, in, in the same way where normally when we think about ourselves, we feel like it is some monolithic entity uh, that uh, feels solid to us but actually 
in, in certain situations, uh, some aspects of the cells can dissociate and they can come apart. And by looking at uh, situations where that happens, you kind of start getting uh, an understanding that actually it's a process in the brain. There are various processes in the brain that actually brain and body put together. So, uh, you know, when I often, when I just say brain, implicitly in my mind, I'm thinking it's the brain-body complex. Um, there are various processes that have to work hard all the time uh, to give us this kind of each sense of being a unity, a, a self that is, you know, solid. But actually, um, these are ongoing processes that are always at work. And so like any other physiological process, it can be disrupted. Exactly, exactly. And then it, it happens. And it, it, you, you don't even have to look at extreme conditions. You know, you just in the course of a day or, or a week or a month, we will have situations where we feel different and, and something seems amiss or, and, uh, you know, or you feel depressed for whatever reason. And that changes how you feel. And all of these things are clues to the fact that this is a process and that, that uh, you know, things, things can uh, go one way or the other. Uh, depending on circumstances, external, internal, and, uh, and, and change your sense of self. So medical science works uh, in sort of groups and generalizations. You can put a set of symptoms together and call it a syndrome. Um, but the sense of self is so individual and, as you say, so mutable in some ways. So how do you approach this from a, from a scientific perspective or a medical perspective? I think that's the that's the challenge. In some sense, in in order to ask questions about the self, you really have to pay attention to the individual. You really have to understand what it is like to be someone, and whether you're talking of just uh, an ordinary individual or someone, say, who is suffering from Alzheimer's or. Uh, you know, it's important to get a sense of what it is from within because that subjective experience is really crucial to figuring out what's happening. It, it's impossible to objectively, you know, look at brain scans or the physiology and say, oh, this is how the person must be feeling. It's, you know, we can't do that. So in some sense, the individual is really important, and yet you need to do the, the kind of medical studies that you would on, on a cohort of patients to kind of understand uh, what might be happening in the brain and the body to give rise to each individual's subjective experience. And uh, who are some of the most interesting people that you interviewed for this? Because you did take a very individual approach. I did. I mean, uh, <clears throat> in terms of the conditions, uh, you know, one of the most uh, intriguing one for me was uh, ecstatic epilepsy. Uh, now, when we normally think of an epileptic seizure, uh, what comes to mind is people losing consciousness, and, and that's usually the grand mal seizure that completely overwhelms the cortex, and and people do lose consciousness, and it's really quite dangerous. Um, the epilepsy that I was looking at is something that is called a focal seizure, which means it's restricted to a small region of the brain, doesn't spread across the entire cortex. And uh, and in this particular case, the, this seizure uh, doesn't knock you unconscious. You're completely aware. And uh, and what was uh, uh, very intriguing about the description of what one feels like when you're having a seizure is the people that I spoke to talked about how it made them feel 
well and 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 joyous and blissful there there are feelings of mental and physical well-being um a feeling that time slows down somehow the seizure itself may have lasted just a second or two um but for them while they were experiencing it 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 seemed like much more time had passed uh the other thing that seems to happen is uh you know the person would say that they feel their own body state and you know and and the environment around them in terms of the the colors and the sounds much more vividly than you would otherwise it's as if one person i remember told me that it's as if some you know you suddenly started seeing things in 3d Hmm. which until before that before the seizure uh, you know it would have felt like 2d i mean of course even before you were seeing it in 2d you were just using kind of a um a way of expressing how intense and how vivid your perception becomes during the seizure it's almost like everything suddenly popped into you know high def and uh and the other thing that that's very paradoxical even though you're feeling your environment and your sensations really vividly you also kind of feel as if some boundary between yourself and the outside world has disappeared and 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 leads to a feeling of oneness with something larger uh which then prompts questions about oh you know the feeling of is in being in the presence of god and things like that so uh when you hear people talk about what this feels like you are almost struck by the similarities between these descriptions and the descriptions that mystics have about you know their mystical experiences um uh, i'm not equating the two i'm just saying that they they sound extremely similar um so i think this particular you know um the people that i met who discussed their ecstatic epilepsy experiences were really illuminating i think there's something um quite striking about what they feel when they're uh, in the throes of the seizure So the the title of the book uh, The Man Who Wasn't There comes from this poem Antigonish by Hughes Marins uh and that poem was was originally written about a man who's dealing with a ghost uh the man who wasn't there is is persecuting him is hounding him and he he says you know I I wish that he would go away um and I feel like you're taking this from the other perspective from the perspective of the man who wasn't there you're interviewing people whose sense of of self might be ghostly or or uh outside of what most people expect and so I was wondering if they have experienced a sense of of rejection of being told you know we don't like the way that you are not there go away stop bothering us with your strange sense of self No um I don't think they felt necessarily rejected I think the title and the, the way uh, we arrived at it it kind of refers to certain aspects of the self that actually do go away when you're suffering from say Alzheimer's um you know Alzheimer's uh, eats away at your narrative self the story that we are and the stories that we are the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are the stories that we tell others about who we are Uh, all and all the stories that narrative is completely dependent on our memories our being able to recall you know what happened to us being able to imagine what might happen to us uh, and it's a coherent narrative that's in our heads and alzheimer's uh, slowly destroys that and uh, so in some sense uh, some aspect of you does go away it also refers to in some sense uh, cotard syndrome where someone is saying that i don't exist even though uh you know uh, the person is uh, alive um, doing all the things that uh, a person who's alive would be doing eating sleeping drinking etc um but somehow they perceive themselves to not exist and uh, 
So in in ways, and you brought up this ghostly thing. You know, there's a whole chapter on what are called autoscopic phenomena, where people actually perceive a double, for instance, this so-called doppelganger effect, where you perceive another you in front of you, and you have an interaction with that doppelganger. It's still you, and and in in some sense, it also it can also refer to that. Uh, ghostly image of yourself. That man, that person is not really there, but you nonetheless perceive and interact with that person. And all of these conditions are really telling us something about the experience of being a self by looking at you know situations where the self is being disrupted. And how comfortable are the people you talked with? Uh, uh, how comfortable are they with? their altered senses of self. I mean, I I read the piece that you did for Matter on uh, people who want to amputate limbs that from the outside appear perfectly healthy. Uh, yeah. And they all seemed to feel so glad and so satisfied when they were able to indulge this urge, get the amputation. They felt better and happier within themselves. Uh, is is that a pretty a pretty typical thing that people feel comfortable with who they are even even though it may not be who they expected to be it really depends at what stage of their uh, suffering you are talking to them uh, i mean you know in the case of uh, body integrity identity disorder this one person that i write about you know before he got his amputation he was definitely suffering mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he wanted his the leg that didn't feel like his uh, taken away and uh, so but afterwards he did say that he felt fine I and mean, he was happy now that uh, this leg that wasn't his was gone um, I wouldn't say that the same is true for other conditions where you know if, if someone is suffering from schizophrenia or autism or um, you know conditions that depending on the severity of the condition the suffering can be quite quite extreme uh, so uh, it's. I wouldn't say that they are comfortable with who they are. I mean, you know, by because they are able to talk to me about what they are going through. They're they're already people who are somewhat able to introspect and have a handle on what's happening to them. Um, so, in some sense, their condition may not be as severe as it can get in other people. And if the, if schizophrenia is very severe, for instance your sense of your reality is so badly altered that the the suffering is quite intense. So I wouldn't say that they would be comfortable with, with that at all. It is just too debilitating. So the same thing goes for something like depersonalization disorder. I, I know the people that I talk to um, and the people I've read about, I think it's quite distressing to feel like you're not connected to your body, that your emotions... Uh, don't feel like yours and uh, that somehow everything about you and your environment feels unreal. Um, that uh, Having that all the time is very, very hard to deal with. So, you know, the, the only condition that I would say where people were fine with it would be ecstatic epilepsy. As long as that epilepsy doesn't turn into something like a grand mal seizure and then knocks them unconscious. If it just remains at the stage of an ecstatic aura, um, they are fine because because the experience of it is so blissful and so joyous. But uh, in almost every other case, uh, these are these are these can be severe conditions. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. 
Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Anil Anantaswamy, who's the author of The Man Who Wasn't There. So um, you've been using the word suffering a lot, which is coming at this from a very compassionate place. Um, and, And I was wondering what the options are for treatment or for healing or amelioration uh, for some of these conditions when they reach the point where someone really is suffering and having a hard time? I think, again, it depends on the severity of the conditions. You know, sometimes uh, pharmacological interventions uh, are necessary um, and, you know, to deal with what might be happening. Um, Like, for instance, Cotard syndrome, where people uh, say they don't exist, that's uh, the, it's comorbid with depression. Uh, uh, people with Cotards can be extremely depressed, uh, sometimes uh, even more severely than what we normally associate with clinical depression. So, in that situation, uh, uh, you know, like the, the the French psychiatrist that I talked to, who have seen there are two people that I talked to in Paris who have seen quite a few patients with Cotards. Uh, they have resorted to ECT, electroconvulsive therapy or shock therapy. Um, and, um, you know, it can take something like that to uh, help the person recover from you know, the condition that they're in. Um, if it's not very severe, then I would imagine there are other ways, um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapies or talk therapy. There must be a whole range of things that can be done. In a sense, you have to recognize that if it is a perturbation of the self, um, you know, then one way of looking at it is the self is itself uh, uh, a product of the way the brain functions, the way the body functions, how we interact with um, our families, our society, the broader culture. You know, everything is influencing uh, how one feels about oneself or what one is. And consequently, therapies uh, or anything that we do to help someone recover or, or, or come to terms with what's happening needs to account for this multifaceted uh, aspect of the self. And, uh, and I would imagine the therapists would be aware of that and they would be dealing with it. And so a purely pharmacological thing uh, approach uh, may not work, may not even be necessary. Your first book was The Edge of Physics, in which you talked about traveling the world to visit telescopes and detectors that are aimed at the the deepest parts of space. So how did you get from studying outer space to studying inner space? (laughs) Um, I I think the the impulse is the same. It it was just curiosity that was driving me when I was doing the first book, just uh, because when you think of the questions that... uh, you know, physicists at the very edge of their understanding are asking, you know, cosmology or astronomy. It's it's somewhat similar in the sense that they they are also concerned about you know where we come from, where we're going, what will happen to us, but in a much more um, sort of detached way. It's not a personal thing. It's not about one's individual self, but something larger. It's about existence of this whole thing we call humanity. And the universe—it's not just uh, us there. 
So I think for me, the you know, it was still the same desire to understand what science is doing to get to these answers. And my physics book is actually bookended by visits to two monasteries. Uh, the, it opens with uh, a chapter where I visit a silent Christian monastery um, in California, and it ends with uh, a visit to Ladakh in the Indian Himalayas, where there was a 400-year-old Buddhist monastery. And I, I wrote about those two monasteries as metaphors because I felt like what the monks are doing at these mountaintops, kind of looking inward and trying to understand their own self and hence the nature of being human, um, was not that different from astronomers sitting at those very mountaintops pointing their telescopes outwards. Um, so in, in the physics book, it was just a metaphor. It, I, I wasn't trying to make any link between what physics does and what uh, monks do, you know, in terms of their findings. Um, but it kind of naturally led me to the other side of the coin, is this internal journey that we are also taking all the time, trying to figure out who we are, but from a very personal uh, perspective. So uh, in my mind, um, it doesn't feel like a big leap, even though I can see from the outside that you know one is physics, the other is neuroscience. But my, for me, the journey seems very uh, logical. You teach science writing both at UC Santa Cruz, uh, which you attended as a student, and uh, also at the National Center for Biological Sciences in Bangalore. How similar are those two teaching experiences? It sounds like you do a lot of sort of moving between continents. I do move, move a lot between continents. The teaching at UC Santa Cruz is very specific. I, I teach uh, a module uh, about writing book proposals so yeah you know, mm. to get to get students to start thinking about writing books as a, a career option as something that they can plan for you know once they graduate so it's a very specific very uh, uh small module that i teach there um the one um the, the thing i teach in bangalore india is a more full-fledged uh, sort of intensive workshop on the basics of science journalism which is news and features feature writing I teach. I co-teach it with a couple of my colleagues who join me during those uh, two, three weeks. Um, so one of the things that uh, um, is very um, sort of obvious when you move back and forth, especially between cultures that can be so different, like India and the U.S., is uh, your sense of uh, being an individual can uh, can change. In India, is uh, uh, much more collectivist, much more. Uh, or less individualistic society than uh, than the U.S. Uh, and uh, and I'm not saying one is better than the other or anything. It's just uh, that's how they are. Uh, but you know, you feel different uh, depending on where you are because you know yourself adapts in some sense to the larger environment that you're in. And if you move back and forth uh, a lot, you you can feel those boundaries shift and change. And uh, it tells you a little bit about you know how our self is constructed. That's fascinating. I think it's the thing that a lot of people do without even thinking about it. Just maybe the language that you're using around the dinner table with your family is not the same language that you use in the office with your colleagues. But we're we're so used to switching from from one mode to another that we don't see it so much. How how has it felt to become aware of that? Do you find an inclination to try and control it or make use of it uh, more consciously? I I'm. I think uh, you know becoming aware of it uh, helps if the experience is 
you know, in some sense, distressing. You you really pay attention to things only when they distress you. You know, if things are going well, no one really questions anything. Mm. Uh, so, I, and, and and moving back and forth, uh, these disruptions of oneself. You know, as much as it seems very romantic, uh, living in multiple places and uh, having you know these various kinds of lives, um, it is. I think it is disruptive also to just one's. Uh, narrative. I think you know you're unable to have a coherent narrative, um, and I think uh, it, it is part of one's self to be. Co- it, it's some sort of requirement, a cognitive requirement that we seem to have to be coherent beings. And uh, when these narratives start to fray at the edges, it distresses you. And so, becoming aware of it, uh, I think, is important. And uh, yeah, and you know we we instinctively without even sometimes thinking about it we seek to be grounded and uh, and you know when the grounding goes away for some reason well, it does when you travel a lot then being aware of the need for grounding why does the self want to be grounded and what does it want to be grounded in whether it's the body or the larger culture or the physical geographical space all of these things uh you can start paying attention to that. I'm not saying just knowing and understanding it actually helps you deal with it, but at least uh, you become aware of it, and maybe you can take necessary actions to, to you know, deal with whatever arises at some point. So what do you feel is the the future of the science of the self? I, I was a medical journalist for many years, and I, I went to a conference once where uh, someone was explaining that the the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that's used to diagnose mental disorders, uh, was sort of thought of as a stopgap when it was originally proposed because everyone assumed that brain imaging would get us to the point where we understood everything about the brain and that that would happen very quickly. And obviously that hasn't happened. So where where is the science and the medicine of the the concept of the self going from here? Oh, that's a, that's a really big big question. It is. I, you know, I'm wondering whether I'm even qualified to answer that. I'll just take a sort of a stab at it, uh, you know, without claiming to, you know, have an authoritative answer. I think um, an over reliance on brain imaging worries me because, uh, you know, if you if you think of any of these conditions, like say schizophrenia, you you take uh, scans of people who are in their 20s and 30s and you say, oh, okay, uh, I have seen the differences in the brain uh, uh, brains of people with schizophrenia compared to, you know, healthy controls. And so that must be the cause of schizophrenia. And that's kind of a very reductionist approach to understanding uh, a condition. And uh, because these brain scans are not really establishing causation, they are establishing correlations, and and that's something that we really need to understand. And the more we understand the self um, scientifically, and you know, uh, it's becoming clear that it's not, you know, it's it's very strongly influenced by everything around you, uh, the, especially the narrative part, the cognitive conceptual part of ourselves are very strongly influenced by the broader culture that we are part of. And uh, establishing causation would need a, need us to look at, you know, how we grow up and the, the surroundings that we grow up in and how the culture reacts to, say, a person with schizophrenia because that will have an impact on the outcome. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, you can have, you know, worldwide the incidence of schizophrenia is pretty much the same, 1% to 2% of the population, but 
the, the outcome in terms of how much a person suffers, you know, uh, you know, once they have schizophrenia, is kind of slightly different, and and it means understanding the disorder in the context of the culture that it appears in. And so I'm not sure just scanning brains and knowing everything about the brain would would be the answer to that. So what's next on your writing agenda? You've gone to the edges of space and you've gone into the, the depths of the consciousness. So where do you go from there? Um, I mean, there's another uh, another field that interests me a lot, which is quantum mechanics, mm-hmm. uh, the the physics of the very small. And there's there's something there that just intrigues me immensely. Uh, and I'm still wondering about, you know, how one gets into telling a story about something about quantum mechanics that is, again, unique and different from all the wonderful books that are already out there. So that's something on my mind. Um, and I suspect, uh, as someone interested in physics and neuroscience, there's it may not happen in uh, my lifetime, but I would imagine there will come a point where we're going to be talking about the physics of consciousness, because uh, it, 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 they will have to meet somewhere. Uh, somewhere we'll need... Uh, to understand consciousness within our physical laws, uh, if that's going to be possible. Uh, and that intrigues me. But I, I don't know. I mean, there's not enough science at this point to write about it. So, But uh, one can imagine that if that ever happened, that would be fascinating. What a, what a great phrase, the physics of consciousness. I mean, that's, that is the title of the bestseller from the year 2075. Yeah, that's why I said it won't happen in my <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> what a fascinating idea. I've been talking with Anil Ananthaswamy, and you can find his book, The Man Who Wasn't There, in stores right now. Anil, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fascinating. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Deputy Reviews editor Gabe Habash talks about some exciting debuts. Stay tuned. I'm Eric Burns, the author of 1920, The Year That Made the Decade Roar. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habash is here to tell us all about some major upcoming fiction debuts. Hi, Gabe. Hi, Rose. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? Good, thanks. Good, good. So thank you for coming on to tell us a little bit about our Writers to Watch feature, which is in this week's issue. It's uh, very exciting stuff coming out this season. Tell us a little bit about some of the authors. Can you make a, a generalization? Are they mostly young authors? Uh, this this crop is really good because uh, we got a pretty good mix of uh, genres and um, disciplines and all the books are different. And so we had a lot to pick from and we narrowed it down to 10. And I, I think if you're a fan of fiction, you could find at least one or two of these that you would be interested in reading and they're all great. So, so give us some of the highlights. Um, so the first one I wanted to bring up is called into the Valley and it's by Ruth Galm. And that is out in August. And, um, the way that we do the features, we sort of, dig into the backstory of the authors, why they, um, wrote about what they did, um, what the sub, how the subject matter relates to their personal lives. Um, you know, we get quotes from the editors and the agents as well. Um, so Ruth's story is the tried and true perseverance pays off. 
Um, she was rejected by upwards of 60 agents. Wow. And she was discovered in the slush pile of Soho Press. And um, they picked her out. And now she's got her first novel coming out. And we started the book. And um, it's sort of about this mysterious... It's set, it's set in California. And it's about this woman who has a sort of um, mysterious illness that she describes as car sickness and um she sort of drifts around from place to place and uh steals and you know there's a lot of like seedy motels going on and um it's not a thriller it's more like Joan Didion sort of malaise but um it's really well written the voice is very compelling and um yeah the 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 fact that she was rejected by so many people um and then turned out such a successfully written book is is quite a story yeah, that's um, that's pretty impressive. And so there's something really to be said for those unagented slush piles. Yeah, I mean, it, they're there for a reason. And this is, you know, the sort of thing that keeps a lot of people going is this, you know, hope that you can, uh, you know, get this long shot. And, you know, she kept with it and, you know, paid off. Um, so then the next one uh, I wanted to bring up is called You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine. And it's by Alexandra Kleeman, and that comes out in August also from Harper. And um, this is a this book is really interesting because it's a sort of um, takedown of consumerism in the Don DeLillo mode, and uh, it has a sort of uh, vague setting, and it, the, none of the characters have full names; they're all initials. And it's about hmm. the main character has a roommate who begins to start looking like her and cuts her hair like hers and um there's sort of this weird love triangle that emerges between the two girls and the main character's boyfriend and there's cults involved and um it's just a really strange book and it actually you know reads well above what you would expect from a typical debut novel that's not to slight debut novels as a whole or, you know, to say that you should expect less from them, but it doesn't read as though um, it's a first effort. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's young. She just graduated from uh, Columbia's MFA program. And, you know, she cites um, Kobo Abe and Haruki Murakami as influences. And you can definitely see the sort of magical uh, strangeness floating around in the pages. Um, so that's definitely one to watch and that's called you two can have a body like mine. Um, and then the next one I wanted to bring up is, uh, might take some explaining. Okay. Um, but it's, uh, from a small publisher, uh, soft, soft skull imprint of counterpoint and it's called calf C A L F and it's by Andrea Klein. And, um, I believe the pub month is October. Yeah, it's October. And um, so the backstory of this is the fictionalization of two two disparate crimes that occurred in the 1980s. The first being the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan by John Hinckley Jr. And the second being the murder of a 10-year-old girl by her socialite mother uh, named Leslie DeVoe. Mm-hmm. And the way that these two uh, characters are intersecting in the book is that in real life they both ended up in the same psychiatric hospital and they began a romantic relationship this is john hinckley jr and leslie devoe these two very famous 
uh, people who were convicted of crimes in the 1980s. And Andrea Klein, in her book, uh, was actually, as a girl, was classmates with the murdered girl. Mm. And so has a sort of personal connection to the story and sort of uses that as a jumping off point for this sort of multi-split narrative book um, that, you know, has a John Hinckley character stand in and has a stand in for the Leslie DeVoe crime. So it's a fictionalization of the events, but she also makes it her own and sort of turns into this dark, twisted uh, novel. And it's um, not really like anything else out this season. And again, is very impressive for, especially for a debut novelist. Um, And so the last one I wanted to bring up um, is called Beauty is a Wound. And I... I'm not going to, I'm not sure if I know how to say his name correctly, but it's Ika Kurniawan. And he is, um, a very big novelist and, uh, in his native Indonesia. And this is his first book that has been translated into English. It's from new directions and it's out in September. And, um, I should mention that we starred all four of these books. They're, yeah, all, they're all great books. I was I was figuring that rave reviews were kind <laughs> yeah. of a prerequisite for yeah. showing up in this cream of the yeah, crop. Yeah, I, I should mention that we we've we've reviewed all these books. They're not just sort of you know picked. Um, and uh, yeah, so this book, Beauty Is a Wound, is just a remarkable book in its own right. But it's also very important because Indonesian is a notoriously under-translated language mm. in the English market and it's you know maybe a little bit unfair but this is sort of like the book that everybody who cares about literature and translation is hoping is the breakthrough for this corner of the world that has been so underrepresented and um it's a wonderful book it's an epic it's about 500 pages but it moves really quickly the closest comparison i could think of it is um 100 years of solitude by marquez there's some magical realist elements it's set in a village that sort of goes through uh the the bulk of the 20th century in indonesia and it goes through um all the major historical events um the colonization and the communist purge and um it just sort of looks at these huge historical events through the lens of this very small village um and the main character is the towns well there's a bunch of characters it's it's like marquez where there's a huge cast but Mm -hmm. the main the main crux of the narrative revolves around the the town's most famous and beautiful prostitute and it opens with her rising from the grave and going to see her grown daughter so um so there's a lot going on right from page one yeah so i mean it's it's just a really great combination of um myth and uh magic and um it's also fairly dark since the country's gone through a lot um in in the last hundred years but it's it's a really really great book and it's also an important book wow so uh, the translation for something like that can really make or break it it's really good to know that there's a a translation that's making this story accessible and you know as as rich in english ideally yeah i mean as it wasn't the original language right yeah i'd never i've never read an indonesian novel before this one and um you know it's it's a great it's an accessible book it's not um it's not a very heavy book again the it's really long and it moves through some difficult subject matter but the writing is you know pretty funny in a lot of places and he 
keeps things moving quickly. So it's it's actually a very good entry point and into the into the country's literature. Well, that's excellent. I I definitely hope that it leads to more translated fiction from Indonesia and from other underrepresented places. Yeah. Great. Well, and I I think I caught Naomi Jackson's name on there uh, uh, on the list as well. I mean, obviously, all of our listeners already know about her book because we interviewed her last week, but I just wanted to give her a shout out there. Yeah, that's The Star Side of Bird Hill. Mm -hmm. Um, That's Naomi Jackson, whom you talked to on the show. And uh, yeah, if you want to check out the whole feature, it's it's on our site. You can just type in Writers to Watch. And again, there's six other books that I didn't mention that are all equally great and worth checking out. Great. Well, thank you so much, Gabe. It's always lovely to have you on the show. Of course, Rose. I appreciate it very much. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Michael J. Martinez, author of The Venusian Gambit. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Bill Arkin, author of Unmanned. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 